When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. We're very excited to bring you this week's episode, which features Steven Pinker, the Canadian-American cognitive scientist who was interviewed by David Runciman of the University of Cambridge. I should also say that David is the host of a show called Talking Politics. It's a great podcast. We're friends of theirs, and we'd really recommend that you listen. This week's episode is about Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. They discussed to what extent has humanity progressed over the last 100 years, and should we be taking that for granted? We hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. And for those of you who live in London, please go to our website, intelligencesquared.com, for a full list of our upcoming live events. If you enter in the promo code PODCAST at checkout, it'll give you a 20% discount off the ticket price. Hello, I'm David Runciman. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Maybe to start with something that cuts across a lot of debates at the moment, and it's something that I'm increasingly struck by. There seems to be a new division. People are asked to pick sides in a world where we're always being asked to pick sides between optimism and pessimism. You're either going to be one of the optimists or if you're not, you're one of the pessimists. So you use the language of optimism and pessimism in the book. Occasionally. Occasionally. But you also have a, a, a bit where you, you are wary of it. Why has that become the choice? How did we get to the point where – and you know, I'm asked this question a lot. You, you talk about something in contemporary politics or contemporary social developments, and people want to know, so does that make you one of the optimists or one of the pessimists? Where did we, how did we get here? <laughs> Well, it's not clear that, uh, that, that this represents a change from the past because there have been famously optimistic and, pol- and pessimistic politicians in the past. Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, Ronald Reagan said, it's morning in America. So the, the, the language has been with us probably for as long as there's been politics. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> I think that the uh, new focus on what is I think mistakenly called optimism comes from the fact that uh, for the first time there's been attention to data on whether there has been progress in the past. Now, that's a different question as to whether things will get better in the future, but it's surely relevant to it. And many people have opinions <clears throat> on which way they think the world is going, which way they think society is going, which are uh, claims about uh, particular measures of human well-being, war, crime, prosperity, um, health, and which are testable claims, but until recently, no one has really uh, tried to plot out the trajectory of the world in the past empirically so that our opinions on the present are actually informed by the, our, our best knowledge of which way the world is going. And we just know from, uh, from 
opinion surveys that people have systematically incorrect assumptions about uh, recent change. They think that global poverty is increasing. It's been, in fact, decreasing by a lot. They think that uh, deaths in war have been increasing. They've been decreasing. They think that crime is increasing. They're wrong. Uh, and the kind of argument that I have made is not one of prognostication into the future, but it's just pointing out facts that people don't know. Uh, and that is often mistaken for uh, optimism, a, a, a doctrine that I don't think is, is particularly coherent. There's no reason to think that things will, will uh, automatically get better any, any more than they'll automatically get worse. But because of the, I, that category, the dichotomy in people's minds, they think that pointing out, pointing out facts that things have gotten bet, but better is a, a form of optimism. Because you could say that the challenge, the thing we want to avoid here is fatalism. And Indeed. both optimism and pessimism can be, and in some ways inherently are, forms of fatalism. They, they plot trajectories from the past to the future. I think you used the Hans Rosling phrase, um, possibilism, or to be a possibilist. Yes. That's so, as a way, you need to, the future needs to be open however you use the data from the past. Indeed. And, of course, the future is open. It's going to depend. It's more very, open than the past. It's, it, it's, it's <laughs> quite right. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the um, I, I'm uh, repeatedly... Uh, Bemused, annoyed, frustrated by the fact that uh, people mistake, uh, to borrow another Rosling term, factfulness, namely the idea that our opinions ought to be informed by our, our uh, best data. Uh, and the, the facts show that there has been improvement. That's not optimism. That's looking at reality as opposed to speculating based on your, on your imagination and your preconceptions. So one of the things that, that has puzzled me here, and again, it comes out of a range of writing, yours, but also the factfulness book, is that as you describe and make a very persuasive case, we're kind of hardwired to favor bad news over good news. There are various aspects to how we function cognitively. It's not just you can't just blame it on the media. You can't blame it on a new news environment as well. That's responding to certain, certain cues that we are primed to pick up on. So Rosling shows that you ask people basic questions about the world and they think it's much worse than it is. And this includes people working in government, in the aid industry, people who are working in NGOs, people who are working in universities, intelligent, well-informed people get the world wrong. People have presumably always got the world wrong. And yet those are the people who have produced this trajectory towards progress, as it were, a world of pessimists, if we can call them that, or people who misapprehend the world. These are also the people out of whom progress has come. We've never had a society or a community where, where people have been genuinely fully aware of the progress that's been made. That, Am that's I wrong actually, to – I think you are wrong, yeah. At least, I, well, at least I'd want to see evidence that that's yeah. the case. And I, it, what evidence on, that we've never had societies where people have been genuinely attuned to the way the world is going? Well, OK. So let me take a step back. Yeah. It is certainly true that a, a pervasive feature of our psychology is that we are more affected by the negative than the positive, called the negativity bias. Bad is stronger than good. We dread losses more than we uh, enjoy gains. There are many more words for negative emotions than for positive emotions. We remember bad events more than, than uh, good events. But of course, it can't be that that locks us into a constant level of, uh, of pessimism. Otherwise, we would all be equally pessimistic at all points in history, and that's clearly not true. Uh, now, I don't know if, if pessimism means rec recognizing problems. 
that I think that's a, not a very useful characterization of pessimism because clearly problems don't solve themselves. That's like the fundamental law of the universe. There are many more ways for things to go wrong than for things to go right. That's presumably why the negativity bias evolved in the first place. And I would say that improvements in the past weren't made by, again, I don't know what you mean by pessimists. They're certainly Yeah, I'm using by, the language that I said we shouldn't use, so we need a different price, term for it. Yes. So if, uh, but people if, who've if, misunderstood, the you know, people who do not have the facts present in mind, people have misunderstood the world that they live in, and yet those people also are producing I, progress. I, 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 uh, I'd like... No, I'd like to see evidence for that. I don't think that is correct. Uh, so the audiences like, that Rosling talks to, all of whom yeah. consistently get the world wrong, these are also the people who are working in this world to make it better. Well, no, because almost everyone that Rosling talks to gets, gets it wrong. Mm. Uh, some of the and uh, many of the people who uh, actually are working to make it better are not. Uh, misinformed in the way that the majority of his audience is. Uh, in fact, many of the people who have the who are doing the most. Well, just Bill Gates would be an example, and he is someone who yeah. is well aware of the data that uh, that uh, progress is possible, which is precisely what emboldens him to uh, to, to push forward with his philanthropic uh, endeavors. So, Norman Borlaug, father of the Green Revolution, credited with saving a billion lives by the development of vigorous hybrids. Was he a pessimist? He, he recognized that there was massive uh, hunger and famine and insufficient calories. That's not pessimism. That's, uh, that's an acknowledgment of reality. Uh, at the same time, he reasonably thought that uh, there are roots to improving plant varieties that could alleviate this uh, calorie insufficiency. And so he worked very hard to develop them. Now, is that pessimism? Uh, the fact that he noticed people are dying of, of starvation, that's not pessimism. That's an awareness of reality. So yes, it is only the recognition of problems that allows problems to be solved because problems don't solve themselves. That's not pessimism by any reasonable definition of pessimism. Surely it's it, that, that uh, pessimism doesn't consist of opening your eyes, seeing the problems around you and wanting to solve them. And so let's park the pessimism optimism. It's my fault. I brought it back in. Language. A society of people developed Western society like ours, which is at the moment seems to be full of people misapprehending the world, inherently fearing the worst when there are many things that are getting better all around them. A society which is fully cognizant of the facts. So we don't, you know, these people you talk about, they are the few, the minority, they are often pioneers or visionaries. Yeah. What would a society where, as it were, everyone got it be like? I mean, it's and this is an open question because we've never had one. Yes. I mean, do you have a sense it would be an extraordinarily like turbocharged progressive society? Would it be different from ours? What uh, would it be like where the, where the news was a fair reflection of the world? Because it's quite hard to imagine it. Yes. I, I think it, could, it, it uh, could be more constructive. Again, I don't, I, I, <clears throat> I'm always wary of imagining some impossible utopian future in which human nature has been, uh, been zeroed out. <laughs> Uh, but I do think that the needle can be moved, and I think that there, I, for example, in the case of you know, let's take our what's probably our biggest challenge right now, which is the climate. Uh, I often hear people say and write, uh, "We're cooked. Nothing we can do about it. Uh, let's enjoy life while we can." And that's the fatalism. Right? Uh, that, that that is the the, uh, the fatalism. Uh, I, I believe that if there was more discussion in academia in the media of um, pathways to a decarbonized economy, how do we get there from here? What, what would realistically allow us to uh, enjoy all the advantages of energy without uh, damaging greenhouse gas emissions, that we would, have, we would move more quickly, we would have less climate denial, 
uh, and uh, <clears throat> we'd have a, a better chance of surviving this uh, crisis. In fact, and it, this is not just my own speculation, but there are um, uh, studies that show that if you present to people the uh, idea that, uh, for example, nuclear power might be a way of dealing with climate change. Now, without advocating that it is, but just noting that it could be, fewer people deny the fact that human activity is warming the climate in the first place. Now, of course, that's irrational. Whether or not there exists a, a solution to a problem is independent of whether the problem exists. But it is part of our psychology that we're more likely to accept a, 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 the existence of a problem if we think that, it, that there's a, a way out of it. Uh, and that's a feature of psychology that perhaps could be constructively um, exploited if we had a, a more reality-based discussion, both uh, an assessment of our current situation, the, um, the, the possible routes forward, a look back to see if the routes that we're anticipating are realistic, namely has the world in the past done anything like what we're advocating it do at the present just to calibrate our hopes and expectations uh, to reality. But yeah, I think that, that that would be a um, a better society. I don't imagine that we'll ever get to a point where everyone thinks like like that. Like that. But on the other hand, everyone doesn't have to think like that because, you know, as we know, uh, there's no complete participatory democracy where every decision gets made based on public opinion. Elites uh, get their way for better or worse. And uh, even if the people with their hands on the levers of power uh, have a, a more reality-based view – uh, that would be uh, sufficient to to uh, uh, put us in a better position. So the climate question raises a category that you write about in Enlightenment Now, again, a relatively new term, existential risk and existential threats, and climate is sometimes characterized as one of those. And And there are big risks with thinking in terms of existential risk, and you highlight some of them. I mean, one is fatalism, we're screwed, nothing we can do. Another is that we spend so much time thinking this is such a terrible prognosis, we need to do you know, prioritize it that we don't accept the risks that come with over emphasizing a worst case scenario, even if it's reasonably remote. But Martin Rees has, has made an argument in his most recent book, not the Our Final Century one, but The Human Future, where he says one of his problems is we now live in a world which faces these enormous potentially existential challenges. And unlike in the past, they are man made, they are human made. And we, you know, it depends on us. And in many cases, we know what to do. We just don't do it. And this is relatively recent evidence of human incapacity to deal with these things. So it's not like these are acts of God and we do what we can and hope for the best. We could do something about this and we're not. And he says that gap, again, I'm not going to call it pessimism, but that gap is the thing that gives him pause and thinks that this might be different. We're now living in a world where the human-made threats are real the human capacity to deal with them because we made them is real and we're not. Uh, well, and, and, we, and we may not, but, uh, but we ought to. So, uh, the, uh, but the fact that we're not is being driven by what? Is it by this innate – because this, this is in a context of existential risk where he's talking about thinking about these worst-case scenarios. Yes. Yeah, so the, um, I, I have a public bet with uh, Sir Martin on whether an act of uh, bioterror or bioerror will kill a million people before the year 2020. Which is uh, next year. Which is, which is next year. When did you I, take the bet? I, uh, just two years ago. I think I'm going to win, but... Uh, oh, those are good hope, odds. Hope so. <laughs> you got. But, yeah, I, th I think so, yes. Uh, but the... Um, well, we, uh, we don't know that we're incapable of act acting on it. The world has gotten together and dealt with uh, pretty serious 
uh, threats in the past, uh, the ban on atmospheric nuclear testing, the um, uh, ban on chlorofluorocarbons. The uh, Paris Accords were not sufficient to deal with climate change, and of course the United States is planning to withdraw from them. But it does show that the world the world um, can uh, get together and agree on a course of action. And if the accelerating targets are, are uh, implemented, um, then, uh, then, then that it's a possible route to, to, uh, to dealing with it. And it could be that as weather events get more um, unignorable, that uh, public opinion will increase even further toward accepting the reality of climate change. And all, a majority of people already do accept it. There are various forces in a government that prevent uh, everyone from acting on it. Uh, it's possible that even though we ought to act now aggressively based on the quite reasonable projections of climate scientists, that it will take more uh, salient disasters that make headlines to to move people's hearts and minds. People might move too late, not enough, but they. But on the other hand, they might move enough in time if they the headlines remind them of something that they ought to have recognized just from the analyses. So in a way, is it that it's the gap between facts or factfulness and experience that's still the, the barrier another, here? That so we, we have to close that gap. We certainly have to close that gap. We have to um, depoliticize uh, the, uh, many of the formidable issues that are facing us, climate change being a paradigm case where the denial of man-made cl- climate change uh, it turns out has nothing to do with scientific ignorance, which is what most scientists mistakenly believe. The uh, polls are, are, are very clear that climate change acceptors are no more scientifically literate than, than the deniers on average. What differentiates them is politics. The farther you are to the right, the more you reject climate change. And uh, I think that our, our, uh, our, our thought leaders, our scientists, our politicians, our activists have been oblivious to the damage that has been done by politicizing climate change. There are some... Cl- uh, climate experts who say that the worst thing that's happened to the climate movement was Al Gore producing the movie An Inconvenient Truth because that made it a left-wing issue. And then if it's a left-wing issue, the people on the right uh, are, are not going to get aboard. So that's another problem. Uh, I think a third problem is the um, a kind of uh, traditional legacy green thinking about the environment that rejects technological change, that blurs uh, the uh, the climate problem with a variety of other green issues such as um, smallness and uh, return to the land and a rejection of capitalism and democracy, uh, often merged with a, a, a laundry list of other left-wing issues. We see that in the United States now in the so-called Green New Deal, which is a kind of dog's breakfast of left-wing causes, uh, which and in, and which in fact don't add up to actually solving the climate change problem. Um, anyway, those are, th- are uh, three impediments to dealing wisely with climate. Can we talk about the Enlightenment? Because that's, after all, the theme of your book. Um, and the Enlightenment itself is, it, it cannot be sort of placed somewhere on this these binary divisions between optimism and pessimism. It's an incredibly complex historical phenomenon, both at the level of the individual thinkers. Um, and we know the Enlightenment, in your university, in my university, has an increasingly bad name mm-hmm. among a younger generation of students for whom you can't extract the good progressive ideas given the context in which they came up and also some of the views that went along with them. Are you trying to extract the core from what you think are peripheral ideas? Can you do that? Is there a way of separating out in this complex phenomenon the bits that you want to emphasize from 
mainstream 18th and 19th century thought, much of which for many people now is abhorrent. Yes, um, absolutely. That's the whole point of the book. The, the, the point of Enlightenment now is not let's look back to a bunch of great guys in the second half of the 18th century and do what they say. Uh, that let, would be a bad idea. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. And that's not – that is adamantly not what the book says. I, the, the, book, the book's idea is captured in the subtitle, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Now, rather than listing those four abstract nouns, I, w- I wanted a label for that, that uh, quartet. I could have called it uh, cosmopolitan liberalism now or secular humanism now. But uh, in uh, conventional way- ways of talking, this, these ideas are called enlightenment values, enlightenment ideals. And so that's the term that I used. And indeed, a lot of them were articulated during the enlightenment to give those 18th century dudes their due. Uh, but it is most – it would be against the spirit of Enlightenment ideals to uh, hold the people in that era up as a kind of um, um, secular prophets uh, or people who are, are giving us wisdom, whose texts we should parse, whose creed we should sign on to. That uh, – it's a common misunderstanding uh, of the book even though it is explicitly disavowed in the chapter on uh, the Enlightenment. So you could have called it Enlightenment 2.0 or something. I mean Enlightenment now sounds a bit like that thing now. Well, it's – Whereas it, yours is the new Enlightenment, isn't it? Aren't well, in fact, the, about... the new Enlightenment was the original title of the book. Uh, but but uh, you never considered 2.0. That's, a, that's that, too much of a cliche. That, that, that's, that's so, ni- so 1990s. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so. And in fact, there is a book called Enlightenment 2.0. Oh, there's always and, a and book. No, and no, one heard, no one's heard of it. So, so yes. So the, yeah, and there's a common misunderstanding particularly uh, uh, among – uh, people who study the Enlightenment who are, who are think, oh, he's talking about what I've spent my life studying. But in fact, those guys disagreed with each other. Well, yes, I, I, I know that. Uh, a lot of the questions – They disagreed with themselves in some sense as well. I mean, and like, with themselves. Internally, it's, this is not a coherent – Absolutely. And they, the, the Enlightenment is not a creed. Uh, and and uh, some of the questions that they were obsessed with are almost incomprehensible to us today. It was a different era. Uh, and now I think a lot of the um, – uh, attempts to blame Enlightenment thinkers for slavery and imperialism are uh, bizarre. Uh, I think it's part of the uh, current academic mindset to uh, reduce all issues to a question of, of, uh, of racism, uh, to see the entire w- world through the lens of racism and anti-racism. Uh, and some of them were racists because in, in the 18th century, almost everyone was a racist. And unless we write off the past as a bunch of um, bad people. Uh, we've got to uh, appreciate the thinkers in the context of their era, uh, examine the, the ideas separately, unbundle them, not say was you know Hume a, a good guy or a bad guy, but rather among the things that, that Hume said, which of them were uh, well defended and, and, and still worth defending. So one Humean idea, which I take to be one of the core ideas of the Enlightenment is skepticism. Um, Absolutely, it, it yes. has it has many of its roots in kind of Cartesian skepticism. Indeed, so skepticism is a powerful but sort of dangerous doctrine. I mean, it's hard to control it. It's clear. I'm completely persuaded we need more skepticism in the world because there is too much credulity and superstition around, particularly around certain kinds of. I don't want to call them conspiracy theories, but sort of attempts to explain the world by making it all join up, and it doesn't join up. On the other hand, you know, skepticism is something that could be applied across the board to many well-established institutions. 
liberal democracy, capitalism, how they currently function, things that are taken for granted the world needs to to be this way. Mm-hmm. Skepticism is a dangerous idea. Do well, we do we you know should we not really let it loose? Well, we we ought to be skeptical of everything, including liberal democracy and capitalism. But we shouldn't be nihilistic. We should allow no, our, and it's not the same as nihilism. Yeah. No, we we should allow our opinions to be informed by the the best evidence that we can gather. Uh, we should calibrate them beforehand to how how a priori plausible they are based on everything that we already know, and then update them according to what we observe. So yes, we should be skepticism about, skeptical about everything, but we also should. Uh, in an uncertain world in which our knowledge will always be uncertain, calibrate our degree of credence uh, of an idea to how much evidence there is for it. Do you think we're skeptical enough, for instance, about the institutions of contemporary democracy? Because the, you know, many of them are, particularly in the established democracies, are, are really entrenched to the point that we think, well, this is how democracy ought to go. It goes through these institutions functioning in this way. We expect it to go along with sort of political parties and so on and so on. Should we be more skeptical about some of the assumptions we make about how politics works? Well, we should about some, for, uh, particularly in the United States where we're locked into a number of uh, archaic features of our political system, such as the Electoral College, um, perhaps such as the, as the Senate, such as lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices, such as setting political districts by state mm. legislatures, which are obviously pathological. Uh, and so we shouldn't just accept them because uh, we've lived with them for for 250 years. Um, on the other hand, I think there's a, there is a lot of um, uh, something that goes beyond skepticism to a kind of, uh, I think, an ignorant uh, cynicism about our institutions that comes from a failure to look at evidence that would compare them to their alternatives. So, for example, there is, of course, always justified skepticism about uh, markets and capitalism. Uh, on the other hand, they ought to be compared with uh, the alternatives, such as totalitarian top-down planning. Uh, likewise, liberal democracy has, always will have uh, flaws, which always ought to be uh, questioned. On the other hand, if we compare liberal democracies with the alternatives, we see liberal democracies uh, are pretty pleasant places to live. And I think that a lot of the uh, current climate, particularly in universities, is just factually ignorant of the comparison between our current institutions and the uh, real-world alternatives. And so every flaw and shortcoming is considered to be um, uh, thoroughgoing rot. And there's, uh, I think, far too much a willingness to tear down our institutions on the assumption that every shortcoming is a uh, a fatal flaw. Uh, So I've made this case in relation to climate climate change. The skepticism is is necessary, um, but skepticism too often these days collapses into cynicism. So you can be skeptical about features of the science because science is an inherently skeptical pursuit. But cynicism is always to ask the sort of who benefits question, the assumption that you know, with any large political program, the question is in whose interests is this being said? Who, who are the scientists working for? On whose side is this case being made? And we live currently in a deeply cynical world, right? I mean, so yes. much of our politics is being driven by the question, if you're saying that, it must be because dot, dot, dot. Uh, right. it, it, indeed, and, and skepticism is not the same thing as cynicism. Cynicism is itself a form of dogmatism if it consists of uh, rejecting any possibility of uh, of improvement. If it consists of imputing the worst mo- worst motives to uh, everyone. Now, of course, when when 
ought to question motives. One should look for conflicts of interest, but you can't uh, a priori assume that everyone is acting out of their worst instincts. And I don't think we want to spend too much time talking about Donald Trump, but Trump is the master of politics in the age of cynicism, I would say. Oh, indeed. He ran on a, uh, a deeply deep, cynical program. Dy- dystopian um, program, uh, one that was uh, um, in, in opposition to the idea of progress. Its, its motto was make America great again. So it was reactionary in the literal sense of looking back to an idealized past that has been uh, corrupted uh, rather than looking ahead to ways in which we can solve our current problems. Uh, of course, deeply uh, contemptuous of uh, knowledge and, and uh, expertise, uh, uh, deeply contemptuous of our current institutions such as uh, organizations of international cooperation, the press, uh, indeed government itself. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, one striking feature of contemporary politics is there are two big social divides uh, that you can see at play. You can see it in Britain around Brexit um, with the election of Donald Trump. So one is an educational divide. It really makes a difference how people vote. You can ask the question, did you or did you not go to university or college? And that's a very strong indicator. Indeed. The other is generational. There (laughs) seems to be a growing gap 
between some of the perspectives of the young and the old in a world in which people are getting older and older. On the generational one, maybe come on to the educational one in a second. On the generational one, what do you think is driving it? And on some questions, young people are clearly, again, I don't want to use the pessimism word, but they're clearly profoundly worried about the trends they see moving into their future. Are they wrong? I mean, what, indeed. Yeah, they um, are wrong. No, no, no I'm sorry. <laughs> indeed, you, indeed they are a, worried. They're indeed, worried. There, and indeed, there is an uh, educational uh, gradient in support for populism, a, a generational one, and an a, um, urban-rural uh, gradient, uh, maybe even stronger than the other two in terms of its predictive power. Yeah, so, I, so there, are, there, there is, uh, I think, pessimism in uh, young, younger cohorts. Not all of them. Again, it's always dangerous to yeah. generalize about an entire generation. Uh, because they've lived through the, the Great Recession, through um, a lot of um, dysfunction in, in government, particularly in, in the United States, and because of a, a change in conventional wisdom among the educated as to uh, the, the major challenges facing us, the strengths and weaknesses of alternative political systems. The, uh, I, I think there's been such a, uh, an ethic that the uh, – the, the the only evil is racism and sexism and her, her, transphobia, homophobia, that all of moral progress consists of a struggle against these evils, uh, that that is the uh, main challenge facing us today, and that uh, any instance uh, or, or evidence of racism, sexism, or homophobia is an indictment of the entire society. It's a little – it's different than the, the uh, narrative that uh, previous generation – um, grew up with, which is the say the the tension between uh, open free societies and uh, totalitarian dictatorships, uh, that uh, or the uh, advantages of uh, uh, scientifically sophisticated societies over uh, primitive ones. That you can almost barely say that without being accused of some kind of uh, prejudice. And so, if you uh, believe that the, our, our main challenge is fighting racism, which is a, a very uh, pervasive belief in uh, the uh, millennials and, and uh, Generation Z, uh, then uh, there doesn't seem to be much to admire about our society, particularly if you're ignorant of the fact that, it, that in reality, racism, sexism and, sexism, and homophobia have all declined. But because of the increased sensitivity to them, uh, there's a misconception that they have increased. And there's a, a lack of appreciation of the the, the um, fact that uh, peaceful liberal democracies, for all their flaws, are actually much better places to live than alternatives, such as war torn countries where uh, where cholera runs rampant, such as uh, right wing or left wing uh, totalitarian dictatorships. That has been perhaps as a byproduct of the fact that we've gone through a generation of relative peace, of uh, end of the Cold War. That isn't part of the consciousness of the younger generations. And so there's lack of uh, an appreciation of the, uh, the huge benefits of um, liberal market democracies. So is that also a kind of experiential question in that as one tracks, let's call it progress, it goes up and down. And there are periods where people are confronted much more directly with the choices. And then there are periods where people move away from that confrontation. I mean, traditionally, it's been in the form of wars. Um, an overt conflict, and in generations of relative peace, uh, there is a forgetfulness. There's a forgetfulness. <clears throat> there's also uh, because it's it's uh, there's something unseemly about blaming th- 
things on the kids today, something that I'm acutely conscious of, having lived through it when uh, our parents blamed everything on on uh, us baby boomers. And so uh, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, oh, those those uh, ignorant millennials and uh, uh, iGens, as they're sometimes called. Because uh, part, uh, part of the, the blame actually goes to, to my generation, the yeah. baby boomers, who now are the professors and the deans and the editors and the, uh, the op-ed writers. <clears throat> and some of our worst 60s and 70s political ideology has now become the establishment, uh, in, including the idea that, that the uh, only problem facing us today is racism and sexism. If it's the case that Again, we can't generalize about generations and, and even within generations. I mean, there's another generation which has been characterized as Generation K, which is the kind of 15 to 22, 23-year-olds. So that's K after Katniss from The Hunger Games. Okay. Who apparently, when they're polled, see the world that they're about to enter into as a kind of Hobbesian war of all against all. They genuinely see a future which looks like that. They are also a generation. So we have a generation of people who are in their 20s and 30s who have only known the digital revolution in their lives but we have a generation who've only known the kind of social network revolution the the facebook revolution in their lives might that have a, a more profound impact than we realize on very very different perceptions of you know, what human experience is what's possible because it's it's so young it's so fresh we don't actually know what impact living in this world to to be connected in this way is having on people but it you know, there might be a sea change at work here there might be, and and I, the part that I would agree about is that we don't know. It's, it's, it's just <laughs> the too, too recent. Bit. Yes, right. Uh, it's too recent. I, I think there is a tendency now in uh, the the, uh, the 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 blogosphere, the commentariat, to uh, blame every problem on social media, w- whatever it is. It's social Facebook's media's to fault. Blame. Fa- Facebook's to blame. Yes, <laughs> specifically, but, but but also Twitter and yeah. uh, and so on. So uh, I, I I think there's too much of it. Of that uh, uh, lazy blaming, uh, surely there are revolutionary changes that have been unleashed by social media, and, and for many of them, since we have not yet had enough time for uh, society to develop countermeasures to some of the excesses of social media, the kind of the, the immune response, we uh, we really don't know how it's going to shake out. But part of it, presumably, is, and again, we don't know how we're going to counter this. A relative sense of powerlessness. I mean, these are very empowering technologies in lots of ways. They give people extraordinary voice and ability to amplify opinions and so on. But I think there's also a a widely held sense that they're also disempowering, that people become data points, that they are at the mercy of technologies. Not only they don't understand how they work, they're not even conscious of how they are being played by these technologies. I mean, we're in that phase now. And that feeling of powerlessness is real, I think, for many people. I, I guess, but the, some of the powerlessness also comes from quirks of the electoral system, particularly in the United States, where disproportionate power goes to rural areas. Uh, money has uh, clearly too much of an influence in, in politics, where a minority of people wanted Donald Trump to be president, but he's president. Uh, uh, for many, many policies, a majority of people are opposed to them, but because of the because of gerrymandering, because of the overweighting of rural areas, because of the overweighting of small states, uh, because of the outsized influence of money in politics, the popular opinions don't get implemented. And uh, that may be more of a source of powerlessness than the fact that Facebook sells your data to advertisers. And in the broad story that you tell in, in this book and also the, the previous book about the decline of violence, where you, you track 
global trends. You also track more local trends. And, and they, they're, most of them, particularly with the violence story, are pointing in the same direction. But of course, there are also pockets of experience and, and people living in places that are going the other way. The global story about inequality, we're living in a much more globally equal world. The global story about the tens and hundreds of millions of people who have come out of extreme poverty amazingly recently. Telling that story in the affluent West, where even within a society like the United States, there are increasingly very, very divergent experiences of this kind of economy and this kind of political system. I mean, are there politicians skillful enough? Are there communicators skillful enough to make the global case that this is broadly a good news story, persuasive for people whose experience is recently bad news? Well, it's easy to exaggerate uh, the effect of personal experience. There's a huge divergence between people's personal experience and their uh, opinions on the society that they live in, sometimes called the optimism gap or the perils of perception is the, the title of a new book by um, Bobby Duffy from the Ipsos Mori Polling Foundation, where on just about any question you ask, uh, people will are far more positive about their own uh, state than, than they are about their society as a whole and their neighbors. If you ask people, how happy are you? Most people say, well, I'm, I'm reasonably happy. If you ask them, how happy are, is a typical person in your country? They'll say, oh, they're miserable. They're living, le- leading lives of quiet desperation. Uh, how safe is your neighborhood? Oh, pretty safe. How safe is your country? Oh, you can't walk down the streets without getting uh, attacked. Uh, and there's another uh, version of that, which is, do you like politicians? No. Do you like, do you like your, your representative? Yeah, he's a, he or she's quite nice. Yeah, I keep voting for him or <laughs> she or her. So, so yeah, so it's not just uh, experience. It is also a conventional wisdom spread through op-eds and, and commentaries and television and, uh, and, and, and the internet. So it's, um, it can't just be... Uh, that uh, we've got to imp- wait for people's lots to improve because people's people already are better off than they think everyone else is. Uh, it also has to be part of the uh, our, our our common understanding. For example, the uh, people are systematically mistaken in their belief about the trajectory of of, uh, of war and of, of poverty and of crime. Uh, if people are, mis- are factually mistaken about the major facts about which way the world is going, then a lot of, uh, of um, deplorable uh, opinions will follow. So uh, I think we do have to get the conversation. By we, I mean everyone who has the public ear, uh, the people who write op-eds, the people who, uh, who, who appear on television, uh, and all of us in sharing uh, articles with, with one another. Uh, but in, in response to more directly to your question, is it possible for a politician in particular – to have this uh, tell the global story as it yeah were. well we we had one Barack Obama was uh, adamant uh, about the the fact that that uh, overall things were improving and in fact I stole a quote from him for as the um, uh, uh, epigraph for one of my sections if you had to choose a time to be born and you didn't know who you'd be or where you'd be you'd choose now and of course his um, uh, sometimes ridiculed campaign slogan was hope and change. Uh, but again, it wasn't a, it wasn't optimism in the sense of just a sunny disposition. It was based in his uh, in facts that he often um, alluded to. In fact, I was in touch with his speechwriters about some of them uh, uh, on the fact that there are that, that the world is not spiraling down, downward, uh, and in fact that there are, that our institutions are doing some good. And it's the American right who is, of course, cynical about the the ability of government to do anything. And so it's not shocking that a liberal progressive politician would be uh, – would remind people of what government can and and, and uh, has accomplished. 
but so it, it, it can be done, and Obama was, uh, despite uh, <clears throat> hatred from some sectors, he was on the whole a successful and popular politician. Why do you think with, with your book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which tells the violence story, I was really struck by the pushback to that. People, it made people angry to be told that violence was in decline. It, it, it evoked really strong passions. I mean, I thought it was a very, very persuasive book. And it told the long story, the medium story, and the short story. And these stories, they're not the same story, but they overlap. And yet, it made some people yes, well, furious, right? Enlightenment now, even more so. Uh, uh, yes. Where but but you know, violence, who, why, why does it make people angry to be told that the world is less violent than they think? Often because they are committed to a political ideology that is, uh, is, is driven by the belief that things are getting worse. Uh, there are left-wing and right-wing versions of it. There, there is the, um, the, the leftist version that the institutions of capitalism have immiserated the world and have uh, <clears throat> led to a, a nightmare of exploitation and uh, uh, post-colonial uh, dominance uh, and that the uh, all of Western liberal capitalist um, democracy is – um, rotten at the core and deserves to be um, uh, pulverized and replaced by something completely different. Uh, and there is a right-wing version of it, which is uh, that the the problem is not um, capitalism. The problem is uh, liberal elites uh, and that they have led to a, uh, a nightmare of crime and promiscuity and pornography and abortion uh, and um, uh, globalization uh, and – Pointing out that actually, in the aggregate, these the institutions that we have now have actually made things better, not worse, um, undermines a basic belief of certain political ideologues, and then there are a lot of them. So, one last question: uh, the United States and Britain. One thing they have in common in Britain it's it's more recent, and the, in both cases it's relatively recent, is that overall life expectancy is falling, um, and and it's there's evidence in Britain in the last year or so. Um, which is new for societies like ours, um, that some of these trends have turned the other way. It's a very short-term phenomenon. And it's a very t- – when you say reversal, people think that there's been a U-turn. No. What it means is it's, it's down by, you know, by, by a month or so averaged over a lot of people who are uh, overdosing on opi- opioids. In the exactly. So within States. that, again, for each country, that global set of statistics, there are pockets of real – Yep. suffering and misery and bits of our societies where we are talking about a kind of reversal or a, again, the phrase left behind is the wrong one, but a, a kind of falling away from the overall story. Um, this is politically, apart from anything else, really driving a lot of what's going on at the moment, both cause and effect, actually, I think. It is driving some of it because the uh – the, the demographic sectors that are most vulnerable to these uh, to this decline in public health, to alcoholism and uh, uh, drug abuse, uh, are often the ones that are most supportive of authoritarian populism. Um, although it's uh, clearly they are not numerous enough to swing an election, so it go, certainly goes beyond them. But that that is certainly one a big part of the base. Uh, and it's uh, there's there's no contradiction between noting that there are severe problems in particular times and places and the idea that there has been progress overall. Uh, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation where people 
confuse the issue of whether there has been progress with something called optimism, where optimism is sometimes uh, tacitly uh, equated with the belief that everything gets better for everyone everywhere all the time. Uh, that's not what progress consists of. That, that would be a miracle. And that, that can, just cannot happen. Uh, the, um, uh, the default uh, of uh, human history is not that progress happens. It's progress doesn't happen. Progress is a very special state of affairs, it, one that I attribute to. Uh, I use the Enlightenment as an overall rubric, but just the, um, the, the idea that if we understand the world and if we uh, set our goal to uh, improve human well-being, we can gradually succeed. Most societies, most times and places don't believe that. They don't believe that we – that, that uh, they don't prioritize human well-being or they don't believe that we're capable of understanding the, the forces of nature well enough to do so. Uh, the – and left to uh, its own devices, the world doesn't get better. There's uh, – as I emphasize at the beginning of Enlightenment now, the second law of thermodynamics says that, that uh, uh, without the input of uh, energy or information – uh, things fall apart. There are more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. And the process of evolution, which is what shaped our brains, didn't shape them for wisdom or happiness, but rather for uh, competition. And so human nature, uh, unaided, is not going to lead to progress. It's only if we sign on to these somewhat exotic ideas that uh, that there is a truth, that we can uh, try to uh, attain it, uh, although never being certain of it, that we can understand nature by framing hypotheses and testing them, that we ought to set as our goal the well-being of men, women, and children. If we do all of these things, then um, we have a reasonable expectation that we can sometimes succeed. That package of ideas is uh, is unusual. Uh, to the extent that we continue to embrace it, we might continue to improve people's well-being. And if we don't, then we probably won't. Good point to end on. That was Steven Pinker in conversation with David Runciman. And don't forget, Steven Pinker's book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And David Runciman has a podcast, which is called Talking Politics. Check it out.